Hello, welcome to Time to Say Goodbye. It is the last day of August. Is Wait, that right? No, tomorrow. How many, how many days has August? <laughs> I was like, I need one more day. Tomorrow. Is August 31 days? Yeah, yeah. I can't, um, are you sure? Yeah. How many days does July have? 31, right? My thing is Did that I feel like every single trick? state has 31, or every single month has 31 days. Except for except for February, like what state? What <laughs> what, no what what months have thirty days? February, April. No, February is twenty eight days. Wait, wait, not February. Sorry, uh, April, June. Oh yeah, okay, okay. September. Yeah. Anyway, thank you for. I apologize for this thrilling content. Um, <laughs> it's just me and Tammy here this week. We're going to talk about a lot of important things, but before we start, you had a, I have not heard this question before. I told you not to ask until we were on the air, but what's your question about tomatoes? <laughs> so I'm at, still at my parents' house in Tacoma and we have tomato questions because Jay is a very successful tomato farmer from what I understand. False, but go ahead. I am a knowledgeable, <laughs> okay. but this year unsuccessful tomato farmer. Oh, you are? You had yeah, so many last my, year. Okay. Our, our plants are not good. Well, it's, you know, the weather is so erratic. So my parents have a new tomato plant and green one, a bunch of green ones came in and they look really healthy. But it's the end of August, and they've been looking like that for like a month and a half because they can't get red, I think, because there's not enough sun. Yeah. So what do I do? Should I take them off now and make them ripen in newspaper inside, or should I just leave them Probably. there? Probably. What variety are they? I don't know. It just looks like a normal tomato. <laughs> oh. Well, look, it's uh, at this point, most of your tomato plants should be dying. Right, like they should be brown and falling apart. Oh, and really? Already? Yeah. Okay. I mean, I don't know how it is up there, but here, yeah. for example, I have a bunch of early girls, which is like, a, I think they're called that because they are earlier early. in the growing season. They're Those fresh and slutty. They're just desiccated and they're gone, you know? Oh, okay. And uh, there are some green tomatoes left on them, but like there's nothing feeding them, so they're just hanging there. Mm. And so at that point, because, you know, the stock that holds them up is just, you know, it's like a twig at this point. Um, but these, the twig. ones here are like full, like it's in full form. Oh. But well, it's like they're not going to get, really? Okay. Yeah, because. it's like not uh, so hot. So I'm like, I wonder I don't know happen. if hot is what ripens them. But if the tomato plant looks healthy, then yeah, you should just leave them there. Okay. I think. I don't know. Um, wow. Yeah, ours are all gone. And we're already looking to the fall oh, i don't wow. know the only thing to grow in the fall is like kale and microgreens and stuff <laughs> we have a big pear tree that's where there's a ripening it's kind of like a cross between like oh yeah a northwest apple and an asian pear oh our pear tree Delicious. is going crazy right now yeah right the pears are not good oh okay, okay. did i answer your question i think so thank you i'm gonna give it a little more time also it's and very fun to have a yard yeah, I agree. I agree. But you know, that's that's the problem with America. Homeowners homeowners <laughs> yeah. protecting their ways. Yeah, that's the biggest issue right now. <laughs> well, it is kind of a big issue. Actually, yeah. Yeah. But uh but Andy's not here today. He is busy with childcare and the start of the school year, but he should be back. And so if you're missing his dulcet tones and smart takes, and I apologize just me and Tammy, the two <laughs> yeah. Koreans. Um yeah. 
not diverse show this week. Not diverse. Uh, show. <laughs> we, okay, so let's go to the things that knowledge. we actually are going to talk about. <laughs> the first thing is the end of the housing moratorium. Now, look, I I've written about this this thing, right? Um, you have a lot of you have also written a lot about housing, and um, you followed housing activism, tenant activism, etc. Right? Yeah. I, for the life of me, have found this entire process to be the most confusing set of news that has come out of like the last three months. I guess Afghanistan mm. is also confusing, but <laughs> yeah. maybe that's less confusing than like what actually is happening. So just to recap the past few weeks of this, which is that the housing moratorium expired. Um, mm-hmm. And this is a federal housing moratorium that was put out by the Center for Disease Control, basically saying like, we have the power to do this because we need to control the uh, spread of the disease of coronavirus which actually is sort of an extraordinary measure right like yeah. i don't i don't know if there's a time in history where the cdc put out put out housing policy but like you know this was a big one uh it expired without too much um resistance from establishment democrats right so for example as we talked about on the show nancy pelosi kind of her attitude towards it was almost like whoa Yo, that one crept right on me. I didn't get yeah, my yeah. calendar. My calendar alert is all messed up. <laughs> no one told week, me this week, which led uh, Cory Bush, I think most notably, but also you know Rashida Tlaib, um, Ilhan Omar, AOC, you know the squad basically the squad to go and camp out on the steps of the Capitol until Congress came back and did a vote. Now that didn't happen, but Joe Biden then extended the moratorium. But even when he did that, the general consensus among people who talk about this stuff on Twitter, which I would say like Twitter lawyers, you know, like there's like a specific type. Of, I was talking to my friend about this. There's like a specific type of Twitter lawyer. You know what I mean? I know. We haven't gotten into that. We talked about Twitter historians, but not the Twitter lawyers. Yeah, Twitter lawyers. <laughs> I will say that Twitter lawyers are like the the ones that are useful are the ones that sort of could break down mm-hmm. uh like maybe in three tweets, you know, like a rolling in three tweets. You don't want the 24th chain. No, yeah, I know. But beyond three tweets, I start to zone out. But the but there are also like very well, I'm not going to say any names because I actually don't remember what the names are. But I would say there are some Twitter legal people who actually make simple things more complicated, you know, and it's like this performance <laughs> of being like, this is how much I know about the law. And I'm just like, I'm even more confused than before. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, um, great job. But Twitter lawyers seem to be uh, generally united in the idea that this was not going to pass the Supreme Court, a Supreme Court challenge, the extension of the moratorium. Right. And that did happen recently. Last couple of days, the Supreme Court overturned it. So what, Tammy, what you are a lawyer. What did the (laughs) what what did the not a Twitter lawyer, but you are an actual (laughs) person who went to law school. Um, what, What did the Supreme Court actually decide here? Yeah, so this is actually the second time the exact same case has come before the Supreme Court. And this one was decided in like six days. So it was actually a rush order under what's called like the shadow docket sometimes. It's like Mm -hmm. an emergency process by which that's like super not transparent, hence shadow docket, and is pretty sketchy. Like basically the court without saying why gets to handpick cases and like push them through really fast. So this is an unsigned decision, but the liberals dissented on it. 
um, basically a group of Alabama realtors and other assorted landlords um, are crying foul, right? Saying like they're deprived of all kinds of dollars and the CDC doesn't have power. So the statute at issue is the CDC invoked this public health act, federal public health act to say, like, as you were just saying, Jay, like, this is so dangerous to put people into housing because they have nowhere to stay in, in, in during the pandemic that we have to take this action against private landlords. Um, so basically when this came up in June, Kavanaugh actually ended up joining with the liberals because he didn't like the eviction moratorium, but he basically said, you know what, it's going to expire next month anyway, so let's just keep it in place so that okay. there's some predictability. But it basically was a signal that was like, if this ever comes up to the court again, like we're going to slash it. And that's what happened this week. Okay. Okay. So what was the final vote tally? Yeah. I imagine that it was like six, seven, two. Is that right? It was six, three. Six, three. Okay. And that seems to be the composition of the court now, right? Um, Exactly. Six to three. Now, going outside of like the sort of partisan issue and the Supreme Court, which I don't actually find all that compelling in terms of this. Like what what is the actual outcome that is going that a lot of tenants are going to be facing? Like what's the new reality that they're going to be facing? Because as far as I can understand it, the extension of the moratorium was pretty soft, right? Like it it did not have the full protections. There are states in which like like Texas, for example, where evictions just started anyway, that that there was a ignoring of the of the moratorium and that. you know, this was a expected outcome. Even Cory Bush, I think at some point hinted basically just saying like, look, every day that we can get renters a little more protection is better, which seemed to be like some sort of indication that, you know, she also understood that this would be temporary. Yeah, totally. So before when, <clears throat> because the first eviction moratorium was actually legislative. And when that happened, it was really broad. It was like, right. people can't be evicted for not paying during the pandemic. And then when the CDC extended it, they narrowed it and it, be- it basically became in places where there's really high rates of right. COVID, you can't get evicted, right? And it's, again, evicted because you can't pay. So that means basically landlords could have already said, oh, I'm not evicting you because you're not paying. I'm evicting you for X, Y, Z reasons, right, right, which right. is a huge number of reasons. So in a lot of states without state or local-based protections, evictions were already happening. Yes. But- in a lot of other states, this was a huge protection, at least like even rhetorically, because as you guys know, like the mechanics of evictions are so murky. Right. You know, it's like some of it's a little bit of like a chilling effect, like what's in the air? Is the landlords doing a calculus of like, is this going to be worthwhile? Also, a lot of people basically pre-evict themselves and that's never documented, right? Because they are right. They don't want to wait for the sheriff to show up because then they're on a blacklist and can't get housing in the community. Right, right. So that's that so, is a big. That's a big. Yeah, yeah. That is that is something that happens quite a bit, much more than people think, and you know, in a, at a rate that probably rivals actual evictions, which is that I would like, think people so. do not want to show up and have the sheriff throw all their stuff out in the yard and go yeah. through a legal process that might be expensive. Most people are not, you know, defiant in these sorts of things. They actually, you know, this is just human psychology, especially if you're poor, you, you actually blame yourself, you know, like in a lot, a lot exactly. of people do. And they just say, oh, well, I can't pay, so I need to get out of here, right? And so um, with the eviction moratorium, I imagine a lot of this is psychological as well. Not psychological, but like because it's so complicated, I think when you have a broad federal eviction moratorium, that even landlords who might think, hey, I can 
actually get around this. You know, I bet a lot of them mm-hmm. just were like, actually, maybe I can't. You know? Yeah, exactly. Um, and so in signaling, it was important. Now, the reality is also very complicated about what happens from here on out. Right. And that's something that I wanted to talk about a little bit as well, which is that, look, this doesn't mean that everyone in the country now can be evicted. Right. So locally at the state level, at the local level, there's still some moratoriums. Right. Like there are mm-hmm. still some places that will extend protection. So, for example, here in California, I believe like the you know, we still have a eviction moratorium for a lot of places, especially here in the Bay Area. Yeah. But like, um, I don't know, it brings up like, uh, so it, it's just very difficult to figure out what's going to happen and when. But I do think that there is that if you're picturing that millions of people like today and tomorrow are out on the street, right? That's not quite the reality. But I think the reality is more that over the next few months, those people are going to be out on the street, right? Yeah. Like, that, like so it's like, you know, like you might not get the dramatic uh, images that one might, you know, that one might, I don't know, the skeptic might be like, well, where's every, where are all these Hoovervilles now, you know? But that doesn't mean that people are being evicted, <laughs> right? Yeah. And I think like in a lot of places, there are going to be a bunch of judges who are like literally signing orders right now. But right. it still has to go through the courts. It has to go to the sheriff and like they're limited by the sheriff's hours and stuff like that. So it's this whole like horrible bureaucracy does take some time to move. I think one maybe possible, you know, ray of hope. And this is like what the White House is certainly um, emphasizing is that, you know, all the dollars that got sent down right. to be paid to tenants, it's like $47 billion almost. $47 only, billion. Only yeah. like 11 percent has been actually paid right. out. And so now they're saying, all right, we got to pay this out to save people. And so is that actually going to suddenly kick in? Like, I'm not very hopeful about that because why right. was it taking so long in the first place? But, you know, that is also part of the process that there is this funding available. Yeah, I look pretty deeply into that, the emergency relief assistance uh, or rental assistance bills, right? So it came in two yeah. fu- two forms. The first is $25 billion, The second, one, I think, is whatever, whatever $47 minus 20, <laughs> yeah. 22 <laughs> My Whatever it is. is so bad right now. <laughs> I know the answer. I'm just trying to dispel You're stereotypes quizzing. about math. Oh. Yeah. Um, no, so it comes in two portions, right? And every state is given a discretionary fund that is pegged basically to their population. So, for example, mm-hmm. California's is bigger than Rhode Island, right? So, which makes sense. Yeah. Um, and that for a long period of time, people, you know, there's, there's many reasons why this money hasn't been distributed and they should all be looked at. But the biggest reason that was put out, and this is according to like studies, I think by some, you know, like some NGO that deals with housing um, was that uh, people didn't know. So like something like half the reason when people are like, well, why didn't you apply for this assistance money? Both landlords and renters are like, well, we didn't know about it. You know, Um, renters much more than landlords, but still like a significant amount of landlords said they didn't know about it. And Mm -hmm. you might question why that maybe a landlord is lying (laughs) and is just using that as a pretense to try and evict a tenant. But in a lot of these situations, I don't think that the landlord necessarily even wants to evict the tenant. Right. Because like who's going to move in afterwards is a question that they're going to be asking. Right. And like, why would they not just want free money, even if they you know, for if you think of that the most nefarious it's way, true. like they would just withhold it and not tell the tenant about it. So, yeah. um, 
Yeah, that was the number one reason. The sec, uh, another reason was something that I always find funny, which is like quote faulty computer systems. Man, close quote, which is basically just you know state and bureaucracy's way of saying like we we just didn't do it. We didn't know how to. <laughs> like, yeah. what is a faulty in twenty twenty one? What is a faulty computer system? You know, you can oh run everything. Like, oh, this is you essentially need, like, a smartphone. Right, right. This is, this reminds me of uh, of like when um, people are try- talking about like the amazing applications of the blockchain, you know, and they're like, <laughs> there are all these ideas put out there being like, we could, uh, you know, we could basically take transit or like trucking routes, you know, and every trucking route in the world and we could store it on the blockchain. And I'm just like, there's this thing called a spreadsheet and it works pretty well, <laughs> you know, like, what are you talking about? So like everybody, everybody who oh has to God. enter a trucking route has to like, log into the ethereum you know into the ethereum blockchain and then spend 14 minutes downloading it all like what are you talking about so yeah um faulty computer systems i have no idea what that means it really is always the funniest uh like what what can i I just wish somebody would ask i suppose i should do that you know given that i am a (laughs) Uh, i wish that somebody (laughs) would just ask uh can you tell me what computer systems fault were faulty and like how that affected anything because there's never going to be any reason right it made sense with like like unemployment because it was like so many people were logging on you know but that doesn't make sense with this because people don't know and are not logging right. on. The problem was that nobody <laughs> was actually, logging on. Actually, nobody's logging on. Yeah. Actually, our system doesn't work unless there's a baseline. <laughs> exactly. <traffic. laughs> we need to have 10,000 users at once. Um, and then the, um, yeah, so those are the two main reasons. And then the third one, which is totally expected, is that basically these states obviously can't handle this, you know? Mm-hmm. And so what they do is they, ha- they yeah. give out a contract to some third party company that, and they say, you do it. And those companies also can't do it, you know? Yeah. And so it's like a passing of the buck. So that's what happened in Texas, for example. Like Texas was very bad at it. But then, you know, something interesting happened, which is that uh, in Texas, I, I wrote about this in one of my newsletters, but mm-hmm. in Texas, what happened is essentially that um, the, one of the House committees was like, this is a ridiculous how bad you guys are distributing this money. And that kind of kicked them in the pants a bit, right? Mm-hmm. And then that company and the state got together and they basically just started advertising this thing through word of mouth. Right. And then they just started shoveling yeah, money out the door so interesting. Yeah. and they dropped some of the, like a lot of the requirements for whether or not you qualify were very, very confusingly worded. Right. And so like people didn't know if they qualified or not. And I think that for the general person, when they're asking if they can qualify for assistance or not from the government, their basic assumption is no, right? Don't you mm-hmm. think that's true, right? Like so, yeah. um, especially like, given uh, how PPP went and all that. Right, right, right. People just people have a hard time, like sort of being like, okay, this this yeah. applies to me. That's so sad. And so, yeah, eleven percent's out now. The bigger question to raise is just like, well, is eleven percent out because the eviction? Is it only eleven percent because a lot of these places have eviction moratoriums, and you know they're just waiting? For these right. things to run out so they can start shoveling money out the door doesn't seem to be particularly true right like new york city for example was really really far behind in all of this and then they you know started ramping it up and now they're doing better but when people were asking some reporters asked you know people in charge of this in new york state why this was happening and they're just like well we didn't have enough people to come into work for that period of time oh wow <laughs> yeah Oh, my God. So anyway, the states can't really handle this stuff, you know, and (sighs) that's where it's kind of scary, I would say. Um, And look, 
the distribution outside of Texas of what you think states, what states you think will do well and what states will do poorly is absolutely dead on. You know, the last five states, I think, are the worst five states are like Dang. Mississippi, South Carolina, Alabama, Arkansas, are, you know, like the ones that you would expect. And the top five states are like, you know, Massachusetts, New York now, Virginia, Texas. Yeah. Like, so it does seem to be uh, falling in a pattern that, is the pattern of a lot of things in this country, yeah. um, including like vaccination rates, et cetera, et cetera. So yeah, it's and uh, then Hurricane uh, Ida is overlapping with some of those states at the bottom too, right? Right, which is just terrifying, you know, especially Mississippi, right? Yeah, um, and uh, yeah, I don't know. I mean, what? How do you see this playing out, Tammy? I guess. I guess one question I have is you know, how community groups like have been envisioning the end game here because the aid was only ever going to help prop up landlords, right? And there's no poor family that is suddenly going to have enough money to pay off two years of unpaid, you know, rent payments. Right. And even if they got assistance for 70% of that, what are they going to do with the other part, right? So I guess I'm, I'm wondering if in certain localities, we're going to basically hit a breaking point where there's just going to be so many people who can't pay and so high a list of people who are supposedly supposed to be evicted that it might just break. Yeah, like and, traffic court in New York City, for example. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> well, I got a ticket for I got a tech I got a ticket for texting while driving in New York. And no way. Uh, it took my court date was in Brooklyn. Yeah, it was 19 months out. <laughs> Oh, and then I went to court and I was like, because somebody told me, just like, just ask for another delay. And then it was another delay for like oh, 14, wow. for 14 months. And then you moved to California? And then I moved to California. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> um, I could see that, right? Where, uh, But I don't know. I don't think that that necessarily, I think that there are probably also going to be instances where without an order, even people are just forced out, right? So yeah. even if the courts aren't cooperating. Now, they greater question is just like you know who's gonna who's gonna move in you know like what are these landlords gonna do um and i guess i think about that in terms of commercial real estate too which is that there are all sorts of stores where i'm just drive by i'm like how did they survive the pandemic Mm -hmm. you know why are they still there and the answer might just be that you know the people who run that store are just like yeah there's not really a big line of people lining up to go into commercial real estate right now or you know to go into like a brick and mortar store right now so mm-hmm. um i don't know maybe that maybe that will provide some sort of relief but uh that's also hard to imagine in very very populated cities where real estate and rental properties are such a premium yeah i uh, mean if if that scenario arises and people are preemptively forced out essentially i mean it's possible that in some of the bigger cities you could just have like a mass gentrification with gentrification not even being the right word in that point, but a mass sort of displacement of existing working poor populations. Because right. you could just, I mean, who can basically afford to come in and renovate slumlord properties and bringing up to like middle class levels? Is it just going to be a bunch of like hedge fund driven, you know, real estate takeover? I, I mean, that that's a, that's a possibility, I think, right. in some areas. So that's what, I don't know, you know, like uh, that's what a lot of tenant activists are saying right now, which is yeah. that, um, this incentivizes mom and top pop landlords to just sell their properties to BlackRock or whoever, right? And that um, it will exacerbate what's already happening, which is that 
uh, big hedge funds, private equity own a great amount of real estate in cities. They buy it very cheap, especially during crisis times, yeah. which we're in right now. Yeah. And um, they're just going to control massive real estate portfolios everywhere. Yeah. Um, I don't know. It's very hard to come up with a scenario where that doesn't happen. I know. <laughs> like, you like, I don't mean to express sympathy for mom and pop landlords here. I understand that that's like, you know, quite gauche. But I would say that they are probably trying to get out of the game if they're in it, right? Like, I think that's a fair thing to say. Um, you know, like people laugh at the guy who I think rightfully says, I own, I own 27 buildings in East St. Louis and I'm going broke. And you're like, you're not going broke, dude. Yeah. You know, but at the same time, if you're like that, if, if BlackRock walks up to that guy, he goes, Hey, you want to stop complaining Seriously. and being made fun of on Twitter? <laughs> BlackRock a, is DMing him. <laughs> yeah. Here's a small briefcase of money. And the guys, oh you know, like a lot of those people are going to yeah. say yes. And so. Um, I do think that that sort of consolidation will happen. I mean, it's yeah. the same thing that happens in every single crisis. And, yeah. um, you know, every time there's a big hurricane, I just think about, you know, the start of the the uh, shock doctrine, you know, where mm-hmm. um, Naomi Klein is detailing how Milton Friedman basically saw Katrina as a way Seriously. to like gut the school system <laughs> and turn it all to charter schools. And that was like the last thing he did before he died. I'm just like, okay, you know, like, that's a form of that's a form of capitalism that you know probably is gonna I don't know it's interesting because at the beginning of the pandemic do you remember when like Bill Gates and all those people were were talking to like Mario Cuomo about changing the New York City public system for good Andrew Cuomo yeah Andrew Cuomo I'm sorry yeah <laughs> no, it's okay yeah that's that, right. that, it's in it'll and be interesting to see how those sorts of things come to pass in the next few years like if so it'll true. have an effect or if it won't um because it, whatever effect it has, will probably be not vigorously exposed. You know, it'll be a quiet type of change because yeah. that's how they want to do it. Do you um, think there's any scenario in which this builds up support for more public housing? Uh, frankly, I don't think that there will ever be. I know you're always <laughs> you're always housing. very down on this. I mean, no, not I mean, conceptually, I obviously, that... you support it, but like, oh yeah, yeah. I mean, know. theoretically, you don't think there's any mechanism by which people will get radicalized, radicalized around this. I mean, it's hard to believe, yeah, because people are willing to endure all sorts of humiliation yeah. and poverty before they think of, well, the government should help me, you know, and that's like something that is was not always true of america right but has become true because you know of the forces that people are up against it's very hard to imagine that you can win and um i don't know public health is just so unpopular and um you know it's not just the people who don't want it next to them it's also the people who don't want it in their town or that they don't want in the town over they don't want it in their state and uh I don't know. I mean, yeah. I think it's different than affordable housing. You know, people, affordable housing, which is its own separate thing with its own builders <laughs> and stuff like that, is a little yeah. more popular. But you know, like, what is affordable housing, right? Like, um, is it is it something that helps, or is it something that takes a rent, median rent of thirty two hundred and reduces it to twenty four hundred or something? I was like going to say, yeah, it has to. <laughs> 
When it's truly affordable, it's almost as unpopular as public housing. <laughs> <laughs> right, 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 right. Low income housing. It's almost like, what do you mean by pub- affordable housing? You're like, it's not really that much more affordable. And there's like, yeah. oh, yeah, sure. That's fine. <laughs> yeah, that's, yeah. Fine. that's fine. <laughs> oh, they're only getting a $20 discount over what I pay? That's $20. fine. You know? <laughs> 10%. Make it within 10%. Um, yeah. Uh, I, I, don't, I don't think so to answer your question, but, you know. Uh, hopefully, yeah. I don't know. I mean, I do agree with tenant activists who basically say that we're about to face such a crisis in housing and so many middle class people are going to feel so precarious that some sort of big thing is inevitable. Yeah, I think that might be true. You know, I just don't know what it is. I know which direction that takes. Yeah. Right. It might just be that people become even more nimbyish and, um, and protective of like whatever little they have, right? Yeah. Or it could be that everybody says the government needs to think of housing as, you know, whatever. I mean, even Joe Biden says the housing is a human right type of thing. It doesn't really mean anything, I know. right? But, um, you know, a more engaged and sincere mm-hmm. version of that would be possible, I think. Okay, I anything think else about this? Yeah, the one the one big picture thing I wanted to say about the Supreme Court decision is because I think it's really fascinating because it's very short. It's under 10 pages and it so clearly coalesces exactly what you were just saying about housing being nothing more than a commodity here and right. being so absolutely stripped of any kind of value of like protection or hominess or family centeredness. Um, yeah, the language that the majority opinion uses is just so brutal. You know, and, and the briefing before the justices was basically like the realtors were saying they were going to lose, quote, thousands of dollars, which is nothing right. for a group right. of realtors up against the CDC evidence of like t- tens of thousands of transmissions. So anyway, just to me, it was just, um, yeah, it's just very damning about the way about where we are. Yeah. And how how in line with corporate interests this court will be totally did you read this stuff about Breyer basically saying that like uh um he's still not going to retire and he was talking about his book but then he was like well i don't want someone to come and undo all the work that i did and i was like you know there's a way that you can ensure that (laughs) i know i don't know i've liked and appreciated him i just don't i don't understand they're all what is it? I don't know I don't... much about the psychology of uh, Supreme Court justices. Like, do they think it's like a tenure track job where it's just like, we don't Definitely. have to, I don't have to leave and I'll just stop working when I feel like it. Like, Definitely. They don't... Okay. So they personalize it in some <laughs> But way. even more. Yeah. And I think that. it's like, yeah, I think they, they feel that each of these decisions is this like precious distilled legacy and that, you know, no one can do this as well as them. And it's just insane. <sighs> Yeah, I don't know. It's like, remember in civics class? I don't know if your civics class was like this, but in our civics I class, we were one. taught that basically um, you didn't have a civics class. Did you have an equivalent of a civics class? Not really. Okay, so in American history class, you know how you're when you're taught about three branches of government, right? There's a lot of sort of like, in, at least where I was growing up, there's a lot of implicit shade being thrown on like the presidency and the Congress for just being like sort of partisan, you know, mm, yeah. and that the Supreme Court was like the ultimate, you know, it was, <laughs> it was sort of shrouded and like, this is, 
you know, this is the one that matters. Oh man, that's so sad. <laughs> Sick. <laughs> I know. I don't. I don't know. It's like multiple ways of brainwash. I feel like half of the show now is me just like relitigating the education that I received in public schools. <laughs> it in all North comes Carolina. back to North Carolina public school. <laughs> North Carolina public school. 49th in the country. Although in our, you know, our towns uh, at the time, our town's school, uh, public education system was pretty good. Yeah, as one might imagine in a. University town. All right. Second up, what we're going to talk about is, okay, there is an article that came out about the, uh, a few articles actually about a very surprising outcome in the census. And it was that there was a 257% increase over the past 10 years of people who uh, identify as mixed race. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And the identify is the important word there because uh, the there's, Nobody quite f- has figured out why. And I don't know. I got out. I'm sorry. It was 276%. Um, the, uh, so one of the reasons that's floated out there, I wanted to talk about it, is that um, <laughs> that that it's 23 and me, right? <laughs> that, that people basically have started taking these tests and they realize they have sort of some portion of them that's like Native American or Black or... Um, or even white, right? That mm-hmm. and that they didn't know it, and so now they identify as as multiracial. Now, look, there's a should be a huge caution flag around this pronouncement, right? Like every single report is basically like, well, we don't know how much of the effect this has. It's like, okay, well, you know, I'm just going to assume it has very little effect, <laughs> right? Um, but and it, I think only 16 percent of people in America have used. 23andMe or any sort of ancestry test, which actually kind of surprising to me. That seems very high to me. I know. I was shocked by that. I think maybe because we know a lot of Asian people and Asian people don't take 23andMe. Do you, I mean, <laughs> I have no curiosity. I just assume it's going to come back. Aquafina, a very long time ago, um, made this tweet that I still remember. And she was like, why would I take a 23andMe? It was on Twitter. She was like, why would I take 23andMe? So it could come back and be like, you're Asian, bitch. <laughs> it's like, yeah, what's, what, what's the what's the point of taking a 23andMe test for me? Like, I guess it would be interesting to know how much Mongolian blood or something I have, but I, does it even do that? I think it just says, like, you're from East Northeast Asia. I'm like, yeah, I am. <laughs> there was someone in, in Hanzi's the Hunzi Lewong um, NPR article that found out that they were Chinese instead of Japanese. I was like, oh, it gets that specific. Oh, see, that would trip me out. Which is kind of crazy, you know, because then all the like, people who are in like Japanese colonies would be like, oh, shit, I'm like 50% Japanese. Don't you think that that's like kind of, don't you think that that might be an error, though, like a testing error? Probably. No and idea. it's also, I just don't understand because aren't we like all intermixed? The whole thing just seems. I don't so know how they do it through me. countries. Like, exactly. You know? It doesn't, I don't get it. Even if you, okay. So, like, even if you believe in like sort of the most eugenical vision <laughs> yeah. of America, you know, of uh, race science, and you believe that there are like groups, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, Charles Murray's new book is like this. He's like, I'm not going to refer to them as races oh i'm gonna God. refer to them as groups How is he and still writing the, anyway there's the african group and there's the asian group and i'm just like you know you could just use the old term <laughs> we all know what you're talking about charles but uh you know he's doing that to try and align himself with the ancient dna research that's coming out of you know that's been coming out over the last five years that basically says groups do exist you know like uh neanderthal dna matters denisovan dna matters right and so uh even if you believe all of that there's 
even the most racist version of that, which, you know, I don't know. I think ancient DNA, I don't think it's like automatically eugenics, right? Because obviously there's some science backing to it. And I don't, but I don't think that it, I like the idea that this ultimately proves that there are now severe racial differences between groups. No, you know, it doesn't. Yeah. And in fact, the people who do the sciences basically says, yeah, maybe there's some little things, you know, but that doesn't mean that like any, that like Charles Murray is correct, right? In terms of the bell curve. <laughs> yeah. And so um, Charles Murray and those groups having a field day with this stuff. But anyway, this is a very long way to, way of saying, even if you believe in that, none of them would argue that it's a country. I know. <laughs> <You> that, know? <laughs> like those are pretty new, you know? Yeah. <laughs> it doesn't make any sense. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like um, it makes no sense. So. I don't know how they would pick Chinese yeah, from Japanese so unless like they pick like some like gene. I don't know. It's so dumb. Um, <laughs> anyway. Yeah. Uh, it's not eugenicist, but it's not not eugenicist. Right. I, think, I, I always feel after I read these things. Um, okay. So the, the point of this is just I have two questions that came out of this, which is just that like, first of all, like, do you I think that some of the subtext of this and I've heard this seen this argued a little bit online, which is that like. Should we start thinking that maybe for people who are basically white presenting, right, that they might see some incentive in saying that they're multiracial uh, as a way to help with getting into college or, you know, like being part, being invited into the Slack group for POCs that they were. were. <laughs> That's the worst incentive. <laughs> like, bro, guys, 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 guys. No, 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 no. I, on the census, I said that I was, you know, multiracial. Like, uh, do, you, do you think that that's, do you think that's pushing any of this? Well, there, there was one line in the story about an, from an expert who's studying this sociologically, and she said right. that white people really want to identify as Native American. Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, so that was like, Warren. exactly, <laughs> like going back to the whole Pocahontas controversy. Um, yeah, I do wonder where there, whether there is some of that. I guess what I don't know is, is that like, are they fishing for what they, some sort of perceived financial advantage because of like the way that we have framed affirmative action and stuff like that? Hmm. Or is it more like, you know, cultural cachet or some, you know, or, you know, I, I just wonder what exactly is going on in white people's minds around that. Right, right. It could be both, right? Like, I don't know. Um, but I do think, I don't think that, look, most people are not applying to college at any given time, yeah. right? Like, you and I are not applying to college. We'll, we'll never apply to college again. Um, <laughs> uh, and most people are not applying for jobs where, you know, like, they can yeah. basically use this to their advantage right and so i don't know I, I i do think that there might be some of that and that that would be cynical and strange to me and i would find it although you know i don't like to police how people identify at all you know like i do think that like if you're doing that then you know you should probably rethink it but uh in terms of cultural cachet i don't know i mean maybe right like maybe there is maybe it's a way for people to think of themselves as being more interesting right and um but I also think that like basically a 276% increase in the people who identify as multiracial, a lot of that could actually be multiracial people who are yeah. born, <laughs> you know, and um, the, the, you know, all the articles do point that out. I just don't know. Definitely. Like it's, it's, it's an interesting thing. And I guess like Jessica Krug and Rachel Dole's all sort of make this a little bit more complicated. And I don't know. I don't know if, I don't know if people mm. are pretending to be people of color or 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 using 23andMe as to claim people of color status. Um, although I would say that 
maybe I am not in those circles where it might be more incentivized. We need <laughs> Andy here not. to talk about the academy. <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't know. Do you can you yeah. think of scenarios where that would actually happen? I don't know. That, that's so I was my... trying to think like very cynically about it, and I think the Native American thing. I think some white people are under the delusion that if they have like. 0.0% of blood quantum or whatever they can suddenly get like native benefits right which right. is stupid and insane but like is a stereotype out there and i think also in in certain kinds of like civil service positions racial categories actually do matter a lot for adults applying for jobs mm. so yeah, you know like if you're applying to be a cop or you know they have these programs be- to cure like old discrimination and stuff so right. i don't the head coach of an nfl team <laughs> so you know but i but yeah, I think that's it's pretty crazy that you would go to such lengths, you know, just to have something to say on those forms. And presumably your percentage is very low if to date you thought you were just white. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it's I don't know. I I, I do think I'll, I, I do think most of it is just new kids. Right. Don't you think? Like, I mean, I don't know why they can't disamb- why they can't disambiguate this and explain what the actual yeah because you are, are supposed to list when you fill it out like the members of your household and everything and their right, ages. Right. But I yeah, mean, I mean, maybe there there is definitely a growing awareness around like mixed identity, and maybe that you know we're seeing that uptick. I think a lot of this stuff too on the census form was they've changed the way they've asked questions, which elicits right. different kinds of answers. Um. So it seems like it's a combination of things. One thing I was curious about is like why so much of the mixedness is just like white based. It doesn't seem to account for a lot of like mixing between non-white groups. Right. Like black and Latino or something, mm-hmm. which is, you know, common. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I mean, I, I think that I, I don't know. This is another question that I had, which is just that like, okay, so when you go to schools, when you look at schools, for example, mm-hmm. like elementary schools or middle schools, high schools, and you go on these websites that track the number, they give pump out a number for, you know, it's evil, right? They're like, this school is a seven, but this school is a four, you know, and you look oh, and you're like, like oh, overall yeah. ranking. Yeah. They just give you oh, a number. Geez. It's like, you know, it's one of these things where like a website just exists to pump out a number to oh, give you God. some, you know, like, and so. But you look and it's basically, well, the number is completely correlated on the number of black students are at that school, right? So, like, if you have a lot of black students, your number is low, you know? Yeah. If you have, like, it's it's just it, it's just nonsense number making, right? So, but if you look on these sites, there are racial breakdowns of every single school. And uh, it, I found it interesting that, like, they just say two or more races is a category. Mm-hmm. And in places like New York and san francisco bay area they're very high like the number of kids who are of two or more races but i guess what i found interesting is that like i find that category to be really unuseful you know because it doesn't tell you what the two races are you know and i don't think that multiracial is a category like i think that it's like a category fine for the census or whatever but i don't think that it's going to become like some sort of identity category to you yeah. Or like even like a political category that, that people talk about, like multiracial America. I'm sure people will talk about it, but it doesn't really mean anything, right? Like yeah. Kamala Harris is multiracial, right? Um, you know, it's different, right? Than, and before that, she was identified as black, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, that's different than like Karen O, who is multiracial too, right? Like, yeah. I mean, those two might find some affinity in terms of their own childhoods and how they felt uh, between two different groups, 
right? And I think that that's like a useful thing. But in terms of like a political category, I find yeah. it very difficult to believe that that's going to be one. And yet it seems like one of those things that's going to just take off because it exists, right? Like mm. because people are already making these determinations and categories and some sort of politics will fill it. I just don't know what those politics will be. Yeah, I, I feel, I guess like just anecdotally in my friend groups, like I don't, I feel like all my friends who are mixed like choose. <laughs> oh, they do choose. But yeah. how old are they? Like our age, maybe slightly younger. So old. Oh man, Jay. Oh. <laughs> okay, older. so like for your kids, age, age, you know, maybe it'll be really different. Oh man, we're so old. I don't know how it'll be. Oh. I know the teens on TikTok call themselves Wasians if they're half white and half yeah. Asian, right? And so the Hapa term has Wasians, gone out of Blasians. use, right? Yeah, or Blasian. Yeah, because whenever you're like in, that. or whenever I'm in like an Asian American space, and there's like half kids like usually they'll just be like i'm half and then they'll say you know but they won't be like i'm multiracial <laughs> right 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 and usually you can tell when the kids are half asian anyway right um i don't know i think that it's interesting because like part of me just thinks that one of the important projects if there's going to be any sort of asian I american identity going forward is to figure out a way to, to talk about it in terms of multiracial people, you know, because mm, first of all, they've been completely ignored by like Asian discourse. And that's why, you know, it's like a totally isolating event because the way that Asian people talk about themselves, it's like they're still wearing, having their foot, feet bound and swaying like fucking, you know, stocks. <laughs> with a kimono what? on or some shit <laughs> you know what i'm talking about <laughs> or that they're like oh starring God, in Jay. some like uh you know old school korean k-drama about like you know where they have swords and like wear those hats and you know stuff like that <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. you know what i'm saying this though right just... like right the identity is based in a world where there are no mixed race people is what i'm saying you know like the way that the if you iterate how what this identity is right like don't you love having grown up eating like tenjang chika mm -hmm. or something like well i don't think anyone grew up loving eating tenjang chia but you know like <laughs> like remember when you had a, i don't like tteokbokki or something like that right like that's that's sort of the way that it's talked about and um i do think that it needs to be expanded in a way or done away with and then we can yeah. talk about those different things but I think um, it's so much less true than when we were than 20 years ago. It's so for sure, you know, it's so much for better sure. now. When we were kids, it was just it was so rigid. horrific. But it was I think also, that's maybe where I'm responding from. I think I you're right. Maybe maybe it's better now. I'm just thinking about my own childhood where it yeah. was like basically those kids were so shunned by like, you know, people's parents, especially oh, who were like real immigrants, yeah. like, you know, like you like got off the boat and stuff couldn't really speak that much English and mm. especially among the Korean community where it's all assumed that they're um, military kids in and North even... Carolina and in Cambridge. You saw this. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. for sure. Definitely in North Carolina. Mm -hmm. um, I was too young in Cambridge to know what was oh, going on. Oh, that's right. Yeah. But uh, yeah. Yeah. Mm. It's military kids. You know, I'm sure you saw that in Tacoma. You must have. Definitely. Yeah. yeah. Um, because of the military base. Yeah, I think it, I don't know. I think maybe, maybe some of it's like class differentiated or something. I think there was like, in some places there were so many mixed kids from military marriages and other things that there was actually a lot of blending. I mean, I'm not saying there wasn't discrimination and stuff like that, but um, it wasn't weird. Hmm. 
Yeah, we. I don't. I think I. I grew up with like one half Asian, half white kid mm. that I knew in life. Period. You know, so it was very rare. Yeah. Um. But yeah, and then of course the military thing is always looked down upon. You know, sure. which is ridiculous. You know, like uh, um, yeah. and but uh, anyway, my point was just that I feel like maybe it's you're i think maybe you're right maybe it's just like a problem that doesn't need to be ex- addressed because maybe like there is a better way that younger people have figured out how to talk about this stuff and yet i don't know because you know there's a reason why these kids are doing all these tiktok videos and talking in forums with one another and you know sort of expressing their confusion about it still and i would say that asian american culture teen culture is actually more revanchist than it was when we were kids using this term over and over again, more like of the hometown than it was, you know, it's more like kind of nostalgic for Asia, right? Really? Cause it's, yeah. Cause it's about like K-pop and it's about like, you know, uh, it's about like Asian-ness and, and Asia in general in a way that I don't think it was when we were growing up, was it? Hmm. But I think it's so flexible. Like for some people, there's more, they're more tied to Asia because like they are much more like bi-national or bicultural than we are right right but for other and then for other people k-pop is it's like talking about the stones or the beatles or like Soundgarden or whatever <laughs> like it's just another musical landscape that's like in the currency of just general music so mm. i feel like some of it's kind of been denuded almost of its specificity I, I guess i just i was watching this stuff and it was like uh it was like this these american it, it was like a show and it was american born kids mm-hmm. mostly or had been raised in america who had gone back to korea to be k-pop stars or models oh wow you know? and then they came back and they do a they do like this podcast in english and it has a huge audience you know mm-hmm. i don't know how many followers they have but like 700 1.5 million you know like seven hundred thousand. i mean one, you know to 1.5 million all these people have and i find their way of talking to be like so foreign to me Right. Hmm. It was just like, I just don't get it. I don't get these. Kids. What do they, what do they do? What do they say? Uh, I don't know. They just talk in this cadence that I just don't get. It's not like, you know, it's not like sort of the Korean American. Yeah. I was going to ask. It's not like no, LA K-Town. That. No, it's that plus <laughs> but like five layers of up talk, you know? Oh, interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, just to say I'm old. Uh, okay. Let's go on. Let's move on. Um, and this will be the last, I, I don't know, this will be the last topic, but I, don't, the, well, I think our conclusion there is that like, it's probably not 23 and me, right? It's I was pretty sex. skeptical yeah. of that, but 23 and me is reflecting another kind of race discourse that right, right. Yeah, feeds right. back It would not surprise me if a large number of people did sort of click multiracial when they would have 10 years ago, not right. Yeah. Um, but you know, who cares? <laughs> <laughs> it's fine. Live your life and Maybe be yourself. Maybe the Irish you know? and Italians are trying to take back ethnic <laughs> ways. <laughs> or like, like I'm multiracial. Or, or the Balkan people are identifying as people of color. Exactly. You know? <laughs> <laughs> um, okay. Um, the last thing, yeah, I don't know. We wanted to talk a little. I wrote this thing, and I wanted to get your thoughts on it, Tammy, because I think it's something that we've talked a lot about on the podcast. Yeah. It was for this newsletter that I'm doing for the Times now. It was about something that I had seen where I felt like there's trying to be this like creation of a silent majority that was diverse. And the reason why I wrote about this is because I thought that um, 
there are a lot of points that are correct about the people who are making these types of arguments, right? Like, so for example, like uh, there is a, there does seem to be a drop in public polling opinion about what happened last summer in the Floyd protests, right? Mm-hmm. Um, now there was, remember there was all those polls that came out when they were happening, basically saying like 72% of the country supports these and 52% of them uh, of people think that it was justified to burn down the third precinct in Minneapolis, right? A police precinct. And um, all that is regressed, which is normal, right? But yeah. my observation is essentially that I think that people are taking those polls and they're taking things like Eric Adams in New York City, his candidacy, right? Which mm-hmm. uh, he won and he is a former cop and he did say he doesn't believe in defunding the police, but he also is running yeah. as a black candidate and that a lot of people who voted for him are black, right? And that that happens a lot because identity politics is still a powerful force in America. This is not to say that the voters are, uh, that the voters just, you know, go down the line and click the people who look like them. But in general, like, you know, there's a reason yeah, why people sure. would trust people and, you know, and, it doesn't necessarily have to be that like his police thing is the only thing that people think about. Right. And that's how it was cast by the media, basically just being like, this is a repudiation of activism and defund the police. Right. Which in part it could be, but probably not forever. So mm-hmm. my thought was just that I think that there is something that's happening in the media right now, which is essentially that they're using Latino voters, Asian voters and moderate black voters to basically say, this is the real America in the same way that in the sixties, uh, people looked at like the quote working class, right? And said, this is the real America. I don't know. What do you think about yeah. that thesis? I was curious because- Yeah, like, you know, I have so many questions. Well, do you want to just say a little bit more about the essay in case people haven't read it yet? Um, you start with a long quote from Aaron Reich, Barbara Aaron Reich's book right. on the 68. Oh, yeah, yeah. So, like, What were ni- the dynamics there? So like 1968, DNC convention, very famous. All the radical protest groups go out there, right? And what happens is essentially there's a police riot um, and the police are attacking protesters. And what happens in the sort of melees is that the media start getting attacked in the same way that members of the media were attacked last summer. Right. So like mm-hmm. there's this very famous like Hugh Hefner got attacked, I guess. And he was just like, yo, this is crazy. Back then, uh, Playboy was in Chicago before it moved to L.A. Dan Rather got attacked, by the, you know, like, so, <laughs> so then you have like essentially this like kind of stuff that the media does, which is like, you know, us too, this is out of control. Right. Yeah. And um, they start to do what I would say, what Aaron Reich's is, is like pretty favorable coverage of, and basically say, Hey, the police are out of control. And so after the convention, this poll comes out and it says 58% of America supported the police. Right. And then all these other polls came out. Aaron Reich doesn't cite these, but I found them. And it's just like stuff like mm-hmm. the New York Times did a poll. Everyone did a poll. And every okay. basically every poll found the same thing, right? Which is that shockingly Americans support the police over these like long-haired radicals and media people <laughs> who they probably hate. But also and, Dan Rather. I yeah, and Dan Rather. He's like, I hate Dan Rather. Good, Dan Rather deserved it. <laughs> and so that leads to this reckoning in the media where all these media like heads are coming out with these statements being like, we have to understand that the world doesn't end out, uh, you know, it doesn't end at the Hudson River, stuff like that, right? Yeah. Like kind of, hey, we are all elite, like this sort of flagellation of we're also elite, we don't know the real person. And that leads to a, and this is what Aaron Reich's book is largely about, which is like, okay, so who is the real America? And then they decide, okay, it's the working class. And that is a lot of ways in which the working class is talked about for the next 30 years, right? Like authenticity mm-hmm. and, and, 
that sort of becomes the silent majority that obviously Nixon talks about. And that becomes this very powerful tool, right? Like being like, there's a secret force of people and they all don't agree with you. Now, I just think that now, given the current climate of things, that that needs to be updated. It can't just be all the white people think this, right? It has to be like the diverse people think this. (laughs) And then it becomes this sort of unassailable tool. It's so powerful, right? Like it's basically you are, if, if you are a, any sort of activist or if you're in the squad or whatever and you want to do something right that that addresses racism right then there's no more powerful rebuttal to that than just being like well the diverse silent majority doesn't agree with you right. i see that everywhere right it was it was all over the adams campaign right like everywhere during the adams campaign it became like the media's number one talking point during the adams campaign and so that was my question, just like, well, if this thing exists and, you know, who is it for and how is it going to be used? And, you know, I would say that a lot of the critiques that those people are saying are correct in the same way that in the 60s, in 1968, the media probably was, you know, overeducated elite and like insular, you know, but that doesn't mean that like the, that those people now discovered this new America and now get to leverage in whatever way they want. That was my yeah. point. So one question, why, why is it the media and not the media reproducing things that, I don't know, pundits are creating or campaigners or, you know, sociologists are injecting? Well, that's part of it. It's just like, is there really a, the media anymore? Right? Yeah. Because in 1968, there was, because mm-hmm. it was much more consolidated. I think that there probably is, but it, the effects are a little bit muted, right? Mm-hmm. Like it's not. Like you only have four four TV news stations that are broadcasting all the same thing, right? So um, it's a little bit muted from there. But I also think that the, uh, you know, I, I I don't know. I think that, and a lot of it is, you know, sort of, but that that's not really a criticism of this specifically, but obviously, you know, like they're going to fall in line with, in a lot of ways with what the politicians, centrist politician, moderate politicians say. Like that's generally the way that these things go. And do you see the this silent ma- silent minority, silent majority or silent minority of minorities um, being <laughs> analogous to the kind of post-Trump, like white working class fetishization that we had? Because we had our whole self-flagellation moment over right. that, right? With the JD right. dance but and But that, that was not that effective because I, I think that progressives really hold Trump voters in contempt, right? The white working class in contempt. I think it's harder for them to hold uh, some vaguely identified, hey, this is what minorities, the minorities that you always say the white working class is racist against, you mm-hmm. know, they don't like you either. Right. And I think that's sort of the game. I mean, the so white that all working might be class true. was kind of vague and bullshit, too. But yeah, I, I guess I yeah. hear what you're saying, which is like it didn't have the kind of moral force among liberals or leftists. Right, right. Wait, wait, don't tell me can make fun of Trump voters <laughs> all they want. It's yeah. harder for them to make fun of, like, uh, well, I don't know, those guys, you know, whatever. They'll make fun of anything in their, you know, totally in their crusade and delicious too. way. <laughs> um, but they, uh, you know, it's harder for that, the type of people who are part of that liberal class, I think, to, they'll just, first of all, because they don't know any actual minorities, you know, so oh, yeah. they don't, they just believe that, <laughs> that whatever the, what is whatever is told them about how these people think yeah is true that's why they thought that all those people that every minority was basically you know uh exactly the same as a quote person of color before because they didn't know any of them you know and in the same way i think that can be flipped and basically say well actually all these minorities are like moderate just like you 
you know, yeah. believe the same things you think. So you don't have to come out here pretending you're woke anymore. Mm-hmm. I don't know. That That's just basically, that was basically it. And I feel you in the essay going back and forth between like, this is a real thing on some level, but also let's not make too much of it or let it define or eradicate like our observations of our protest here. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think that it should be used. What my concern about it is that I feel like it will be used to eradicate every type of protest yeah. possible, you know, saying they don't even want the things that you want. And just like, well, that doesn't matter. Like, why do I have to speak for every single person of X group? You know, I'm mm-hmm. speaking for like the people that are with me and the people and the things that I believe in. Right. Like, I don't need sign off from every single Asian person to say the things that I believe. Right. And yeah. but that's sort of the pressure that's placed upon them. Right. And you see it all the time. It's like you see it with some of these sort of centrist pundits online. You see it with people writing uh, pundit pieces, people talking on television, just being like, well, you know, like we are not a mon- we are not a monolith. You know, it's just like, yeah, that's true. So why don't you just let the people talk the way that they want? You know, why do, why do, if we're not a monolith, then why does that person have to conform to the exact middle that you're pointing out? Right. Um, That's my thought about it anyway. And what this Um, points to politically for us is, I guess, what we have as our, the theme of our show basically is to organize around different sets of concerns. Right, right, right. Just like, you know, not identity or whatever. (laughs) The identity of having no health insurance. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The identity of having no health insurance or being evicted, right? Um, or feeling precarious. Like those are all better. I don't know. Those are all yeah. better. Like I don't, I don't, I, I don't think that the conclusion should be that you know we should reclaim the identity, right? Like it's just a more argument that like you know maybe we should walk away from it. Um, okay. The last thing that we're going to talk about is Charlie D'Amelio. <laughs> Why do you want to talk about this? Who Tammy I just this, learned about Tammy today. Tammy put this on the Tammy put this on the docket, and then I was like, "We're not. We're going to talk about this, this, and this." And she's like, "What about Charlie Dil- D'Amelio?" And I was like, "Okay, fine." I <laughs> like, thought you would know who she is. <laughs> I do know who she is. Okay, there we go. So I was curious about this article in the New York Times, which is like how I learned about anything TikTok, which is very embarrassing for me. But Jay is a big TikTok user, and. There's no, that's apparently... not true. That's not true. You first of all, you're a TikTok user. For my age, I am a big TikTok user, but I okay. don't check it that much. And also, really? my algorithm's all screwed up. It sucks now. Like there was a period of time when <laughs> I'm it was curious was showing up on yeah. there. Well, well I, I get so there was an article in the Times over the weekend about the Demilios, who I guess this girl Charlie Demilio, who is like a teenage dancer is the most popular person on TikTok, which is 123 million followers. Right. This is what the right. article says, which sounds insane to me, but I don't really know what to compare it to. But now her whole family is going to do like a Kardashians thing based on her right. TikTok presence. Right. So I was curious just like what this means. Is this new? Is this like, what does this say about like what TikTok is? Does it mean TikTok is over? <laughs> like, Do all things eventually just regress to a reality family sitcom? Well, here's the thing. It's like, okay, you can make a lot of money on TikTok, right? And through uh, explain like that. The Is it creator like fund thing? pays you like a tiny oh. amount of money for the amount of views you have. I mean, okay. it's so much smaller than YouTube, for example, mm-hmm. that like it's crazy. Like the, it's like a fraction of what you make on YouTube. Wow. But um, so, you know, you can make a little bit of money doing that. But even if you have a million followers, you probably aren't going to make more than $70,000 a year from TikTok. Okay. But if you have a million followers, then what you do is 
brands contact you and you say yeah. they say hey can you hawk this thing and then they pay you a lot of money to do tiktoks about that so you can make money that way and a lot of people have and a lot of people do but i think at some point you kind of that's not the same thing as like sort of signing a big television deal right where the money is all guaranteed it's not month by month you know it's not about scrounging up I these see. different things and i also think that there's a large part of it that's legacy based do you know what i mean it's like you I don't know. I remember when I worked in advertising, basically, I was doing this deck or doing this presentation about esports, right? And it okay. was interesting because I was like, all these people, Twitch streamers are very famous, right? And uh, one of the people who was uh, older and, you know, this person very good. And it's not, I'm not saying that like this in a pejorative sense for this person, but their, mm-hmm. but their take was like, well, we'll just put them on like a in a commercial and then they'll be famous for real. And I was like, well, what's the distinction? Oh, wow. They're super rich, but it was something about how like putting them in like a real television commercial that was like shot on fancy cameras and wasn't just like a webcam and, you know, was going to be broadcast out on real cable channels instead of Twitch would legitimize them in a way that would make them quote real famous right now. um, Mm. I think that's still a powerful idea. And I imagine that maybe that's why the D'Amelio father and mother are interested in that. Maybe they're mad because they're not given enough attention. You know, <laughs> I don't know. I, I, I will say that whole thing is very interesting. It, it's just weird to me because it was like, okay, so people are like, okay, remember like when the Kardashians started, for example. Yeah. Um, what right, was the like, number one complaint? Well, there's no reason why she's famous, you know? She doesn't do She's famous anything. for being famous. She's so famous for being famous, right? But the reality of it is that uh, she did do a lot of things. You know, first of all, her father was like O.J. Simpson's yeah. defense attorney. <laughs> you know, she was always out with Paris Hilton, you know, who's another person. She like posed for the paparazzi. Like she put an effort into being famous, right? Mm-hmm. Charlie D'Amelio, like it was weird because I remember when this happened on TikTok when she first emerged was like, she just did this dance that went super viral. And Hmm. um, the part of the conversation on that platform for months was basically, why is she so famous? You know? And so to take one of these moments and one of these videos, that's very random, you know, and and there's 5 billion of them like it. And we can even exclude the whole idea of like, you know, where they're taking it from and the appropriation where they steal these from black creators, all that stuff, mm-hmm. right? Like, let's, if, let's take that out, even though I think it's a serious concern. And I, you know, I, I think that like people should talk about it. But, She's like, been just accused for, of that or? Yeah, yeah, they all oh, have. Okay. Like her and Addison Ray, who's another one who's oh, wow. like okay. does dances or something. Wow, I mean, it's I awful. These people are terrible dancers, nice. first of all. Yeah. <laughs> 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 um, <laughs> It's weird because it's like this whole other thing where it's just like, oh, well, I'm famous because of random chance. Do you know what I mean? And so it's not even like the person was rich and, you know, like a society person who was out and didn't have any discernible talent. It is just like Uh. a random suburban person. There's another one, um, (laughs) Bella Porch, who is uh, this woman who is like Filipino and young, she's very attractive. Mm -hmm. But she like did this lip sync video that went super viral, you know, and now she's Mm -hmm. super famous, you know, and so... What do you build upon like the first the first famous moment, right? You just kind of do the same type of thing over and over again. And then they just you just see these people just doing it over and over again. Now that like there's this Korean kid. I don't mean to ramble about this so much. No, it's actually kind of interesting because it's I just feel like you're 
introducing me to like Saturn. Like right, I have right, no idea right. what the hell is going so on. So there's this Korean kid who lives in this house with all these other influencers. All he does is put Mentos in bottles of Coke. What? Yeah. Yeah. He had, he's like, he has so many followers and that's all he does. He's just like, yo, I'm about to I put. I don't even understand. Yeah. Yeah. And then he like gets, he basically fast, he like sort of street, this is smart, but he like had to streamlined it. And so he got the powder, the chemical in Mentos that makes it explode in Coke and like pure, it's like getting like uncut oh, cocaine or something yeah. like that. <laughs> and so all he does is he sits in his pool and he just pours the powder into the Coke and then he screws the ta- cap on by like, and squ- while squealing, you know, going, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God. And then he like runs behind like a chair or something like that. And then the bottle explodes, you know. He's like super rich now because what of the it. Hell? So, and how popular are these like house based things? What do you mean? Like he's living with a bunch of creators. You're saying right? Because oh, there's yeah, that yeah, other yeah. show yeah. like Hype House. Like right, right, right. Is this right. all? Is this another part of this TikTok trend, which is basically just like the yeah, real they world? all get agents. <laughs> they blow up. They get agents, and um, they move to LA. They all live together, and then I don't. Who knows what type of stuff happens to them? You know, it just seems very dark and yeah. um, sad. Like, remember Kombucha Girl? That girl who drank no. the kombucha? You don't remember this? And she made like six different faces? No. Oh, anyway, it was a very viral moment. Um, she oh The same God. thing happened to her. She did the kombucha video. So <laughs> on she, average and, with these people, like, and then, like Within three months, she was like, here's my LA apartment. I think she lived in like Alabama or something. <laughs> did she make other stuff? Like, or did she just, no. was that enough? <laughs> That's enough. I think it's basically what's happened is that fame has become one data point. Wow. You know? And then it becomes like the show is just about, well, what do you do with fame? Right. And so with Charlie D'Amelio, like that's basically what it is. Um, And her parents are like, we just want her to be a normal kid. It's like, what the fuck? You moved from Connecticut to LA. You like sold your family to a show. Right, right, right. I'm so, Um, okay. So this is nothing new though. Basically, it's it's the same old shit. It's nothing new. It's just basically the, it's like the Kardashians on steroids, I think. At least that's my idea. And um, for that reason, I'm out. I have no interest in this stuff, you know? Like I said, I only follow it because there are some parts of TikTok that I enjoy, but like to get to them, you have to scroll through all this sort of stuff. Yeah, you know? wow. It's just very dumb. Um, Does your daughter know about TikTok? No. Okay. No, no she's only four and a half. Good Lord. I mean, Does she have a phone? No. Okay. No, no. I don't know. No. It seems like all these children are on this now. <laughs> four and a half would be very early. <laughs> okay. I don't know. She she That's has a new scary. friend who, you know, does not never watches television. I felt very ashamed. Like, <laughs> That's so Berkeley. Yeah. I mean it's also very Brooklyn, but I don't know. I don't Is know it? how parents can do that. I mean. I feel like in Brooklyn, everyone since the pandemic has just given up on the screen time thing because they live in small places and they're yeah, like, I can't yeah. do it. Yeah. I don't know how any parent got through the pandemic without hundreds yeah. and hundreds of hours of assistance from an iPad <laughs> <laughs> or a television or a phone or whatever. I mean, it's just brutal. Um, okay. Anything else, Tammy? I think that's good. Good talking to you. Thanks yeah. for your newsletters. Oh, yeah. Thank you. Please sign up for those if you listen to the show. I have no idea how many people read it. Really? Are you getting a lot of mail? I do get a lot of email. It's very nice. Interesting. The average age of people who email me are around, it's about 75 (laughs) to 85. 
and they're very wow. nice. Wow. So yeah. it's print listenership. They're print nice leadership. in a way that I am kind of stunned by, you know? And this has no reflection on the work, it's right? It's just that the people who write into these things apparently are very nice people. Like um, long, elegant, thoughtful emails. Yeah, some of those. <laughs> and then some like, you know, hey, you know, really appreciated that. Made me think. Thank you. I will continue to read. And I'm just like, okay, that was nice. Thank you for sending me that. <laughs> uh, I'm sure that the bad ones will start at some point, but um, I don't know. I don't, I, I haven't actually, I'm not, do you get a lot of bad, bad stuff when you write stuff? Like, do you get a lot of hate and stuff? Not really. Yeah. Just from it's like, uh, effort, just right? from union busters, basically, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I don't really get it either. Um, but, uh, yeah, sometimes you get occasional racist stuff, but yeah, no, not that much. I um, thought you might get some around your, um, the Mississippi one. No, I got nothing. Interesting. All I got was just like, I'm a I'm a retired scholar of history, you know, who taught at X, and that, you know, I really appreciate what you wrote. It's <laughs> got a lot of that. That's amazing. Know. Yeah, it's been good. So well, far. I don't know. Maybe it says something about who subscribes to newsletters too. Yeah, yeah. I think it's another level. It's not just people reading. You know, it's, yeah. you have to kind of subscribe, right? And so. It's not just people sort of popping off about something that came across their timeline, I think. But who knows? Um, it might all change, too. Uh, okay, thanks for listening to our show. We do this every week, sometimes twice a week. Uh, if you would like to support the show, please e go to goodbye.substack.com. There's an option to join for, I believe, $5 a month. Or you can support us on Patreon. It's basically the same thing. You get access to some bonus episodes. But most importantly, you get access to our Discord server, which is still going strong. Mm -hmm. um, many, many hundreds of people. And they like, meet up everywhere. They meet up. They talk. It's great. Very impassioned, interesting conversations about a variety of topics. And... Um, I don't know, if you want to talk to some like-minded people, then that's the space that I would recommend. Um, you can email the show at time to say goodbye pod at gmail.com, or you can reach us on Twitter at, at TTSGPod. Okay, Tammy, until next week. That was the most NPR-ish thing I've said. <laughs> okay, Tammy, until next week. I'm Thank you. Yeah, no, his voice is not. Thank you for listening. Oh, yeah, and we'll we'll see we'll catch you on the other side. <laughs> Breathy. <laughs> okay, bye.